You may be seated. Um, have you ever had one of those moments uh, where your whole life flashed before your eyes? One of those near-death experiences where everything comes crashing in and you have a chance to see everything revealed to you in those final moments. Today, I want to share with you a time that happened to me. Spoiler alert, I did survive. So in case you were worried about that and it was not very abundantly clear, I'm here. So that, take, that, take that stress away right now. Um, I remember the day just like it was yesterday, March 10th, 2008. We had not yet had our first child. Rachel was out of town um, at a baby shower. She was in Augusta. Um, so it was just me, home alone. And we had been in this house. I'd been there for several years at this point. It was our first house, Lake Mary. And the way the house was set up, you'd kind of walk out the front door and it had a little porch, kind of a little roof here and here. There was a palm tree that kind of grew up out of it. And then the garage was over here, but it was a little covered area, you know, your light so you could see at night. And, you know, when you walk out the front door, you pay attention to a lot of things. You just sort of notice some things. I've been reading a lot of books about like the CIA recently. I think they would call this situational awareness. Um, and I feel like I'm pretty good with that. You know, you walk out and all of a sudden something just ticks in you and like something's not quite right. So you start looking around. I'm like, I see Kate and Gordy's house next door. That's all fine. I'm looking out the front. The street's fine. And then I notice there's like a stick kind of hanging off the side of the roof over on the side. I'm like, huh, that, that's different. There's not usually a stick hanging off the side of the roof. That stick is moving. That stick shouldn't be moving. That is a snake. Oh my goodness. I'm terrified of snakes. I think it's Indiana Jones' fault ever since he fell on that big train full of snakes. Um, I've never been quite right ever since then. And so immediately my life, just because I, I know this is a man-eating snake. And I've been confirmed this week because Zach was telling me about a documentary watch where a snake ate somebody and they like found him in his I'm like, what? This, so this is not helping with the snake problem. So all of a sudden everything flashed before my eyes and I think, I, I've got to call my realtor. Do I even have a realtor? Can they do a 24-hour closing? Where am I going to move? Because we've got to get rid of this house. Then I start thinking, I didn't even get to meet my first child. The snake is going to eat me before I even get a chance to meet my first child? Uh, does Rachel even know how to get into the bank account? Did I leave the password anywhere? And then, of course, the one thought all of us go to, like, did I put on clean underwear this morning? My mom is going to be so mad if I forgot to do that. Then I notice the snake has stopped moving. The snake is not coming after me. And you start settling down. I start thinking, my, my life is shallow. Um, I wish I had thought about you guys. I did not. I admit that. Um, I wish I had more grandiose schemes of things that had happened in my life. It was very narrow. Fortunately, the eight-year-old neighbor came over and rescued me as he started playing with the snake. Um, actually, what was really funny is I had to call animal control. Well, I didn't have to, but I'm a big wuss. So I called animal control. They're closed on Sundays. And so I had to call the fire department. I know there's some firefighters here, so you can laugh at me. It's okay. Um, and they had, to, like, they had to patch the call over to animal control to come take the snake away. And he's like, yeah, I'll just put him at my house. I like to have them around me to keep care of the rats. Well, I brought some pictures of them. I may not look at them, but I'm just going to show you. So it was like a big snake, right? Like this is not like a little baby snake. And he was like trying to eat me. There's another one over here. Like you can see, I mean, that's kind of a little bit. This next picture I do not like is it's like he's staring right at me. And it's like, and this last one, he had just eaten. Like you can see his like, that's probably, we had a mouse problem after this. That's a whole other sermon story some other day. All right, let's put the snake away. We don't need to see him anymore um, ever again. Um, when you have those moments, although that was funny and silly, there are those moments when everything flashes before your eyes, right? We have those moments where you kind of calculate life and you think about all these things going on. And some of you guys have faced those in very serious ways. I know a lot of you have faced different illnesses and, and real things going on in life. But when we have a chance to look in, uh, there are some things that are revealed about us. Um, for me, I found out I was quite selfish. Um, I found out, and, and I think even recently, we had one of those where a car sort of shot out in front of us. We were with some friends, and one of those, one of those things that just you know, happened so quickly, and you move around. And even in those moments where it's really happening, I still, it's like, 
wife, kids, you know, you're kind of the immediate concerns. And, and, and again, I wish my life would think bigger than that, but in those moments, it's pretty narrow where your mind goes, are they gonna be all right? Are the people that I deeply care about that are right here in the car and kind of around me? What would you think about if you had 24 hours to live? What would you do if you knew the end was coming? You have 24 hours and it is revealed to you. Maybe you've even known it for a while, but here is the end. Here it's coming and it is wound up and you know exactly where you're headed and you know you have this one window. Where does your mind go? What's most important in your life? What are you holding on so tightly to that it emerges in those moments? Maybe the things you're holding on too tightly to, I think it reveals a lot about us. And the reason we're taking this time with Jesus is because I think it reveals a lot about him. Uh, one of the reasons we look at Jesus is because we get to see the heart and character of God on display. Jesus is God incarnate. He, he is the full embodiment of God on earth. And we get to see exactly God's heart, his character, his nature on display. And, and in these final 24 hours, I think we get an even deeper look because it's so compressed, because it's so focused. And we really get a close look at him. And here's the incredible thing. Uh, what's revealed when Jesus has 24 hours to live, when he starts taking those steps towards the cross, who does he think about? He thinks about us. He thinks about you and me. And, and, and I mean, he specifically thinks about those of us sitting in the room today, 2,000 years later, his church. He thinks about his disciples. He thinks about other people. He thinks about humans. He thinks about the people that he has been teaching on earth. But it's not just about us, though he does think about us he, he thinks about what he wants for us. And what's incredible is he wants something big for us. He wants something huge for us. And, and it seems really simple what he wants for us, but I will tell you it is not easy because the thing that he wants most clearly for us that we're going to be looking at today is unity. And, and his final prayer that we're going to be looking at today, uh, Jesus clearly prays that we would be united, that we would have unity with one another. And at first, as I was kind of reading through this, I thought, well, if that's it, is that, is that all there is? I mean, could it be that important? And then I start thinking about our daily life. I don't know if now is more divided than ever, but I will tell you it is definitely not any less divided than it's ever been, right? I mean, every time you go on social media, every time you open up Facebook or Twitter, every time you turn on the news, it is made clear um, how much division there is among us the us and them and the, the breakdown in the world. And we just see it all of the time. And I will tell you, like I have feel the weight of it so heavy. Like I don't even want to post on Facebook anymore. I used to love being able to go on Facebook and catch up with you guys and, and be in touch with my family and post pictures of the kids and like go on there. Like, and I remember when we first got, it was so fun to find old pictures and put them up there, right? It was just like, Facebook was so fun. Like when you got on there, I remember spending like two days straight finding these old pictures from camp and tagging people and, and, and doing that. And now I, I dread going on there because I don't even know how to interact with it anymore. I don't even know how to post without trying to stir something up. Like I'm so afraid that if I put something out there that it might come back on me or that I might offend somebody or that I might hurt somebody. And it just, it has stunted me. And I know that this is true for so many of us. We live in a time that is so broken and so divided and we just feel it and it's everywhere and it is in our face. And, and maybe it's not true. Maybe we're more united than we think, but it is out there and it is just so clearly said to us time and time and time again that we are not together 
that we are broken, that we are divided, that we can't even get on the same page about anything anymore. I think one of the first times I ever realized that I was at camp, I was at Southwind, this Young Life camp not far down the road where we're going for camp, family camp in just a couple of weeks. Um, I was 17 years old. It was the first time I'd ever been to camp uh, for Young Life. And I was sitting there and I had gone with my friends and it was amazing. I, I, I was in a place in my life where I was just beyond stress. I was trying to perform and, and, and live at these levels that are just uh, inconceivable of trying to do. I don't even know how we put our kids through and how I got there. And I just remember I finally had a chance to just like let go for the weekend. And we get to camp, we get into the first room and in a room actually that doesn't look too different from this uh, and we're all sitting there and, and um, I, I'm sitting with all my friends and we're just having a great time. We just had a huge meal together and I remember the speaker got up, young black woman named Justine um, and, and I remember she got up and she looked at us and she said, there's something wrong with this room. And I remember we were all sitting there going, there's nothing wrong with this room. We are having a blast. We just had an awesome meal. We just played an awesome game and we were with all of our friends. This is our dream. This is everything we want. And she looked at the room, and I still remember this. I mean, it was so crystal clear. And she looked down, and there was an aisle, probably about this size. And she said, look at the room. And we start looking around again. You don't see, she's like, there is a line down the middle, and all of the black kids are over here, and all of the white kids are over here. She's like, that's not the kingdom. Get up and move around. Mix it up. That's what the kingdom of God looks like. And it was the first time, I think, because I had lived in the sheltered world. I was 17. I'm invincible, right? You're in high school. There's nothing wrong. I'm blind to it. I'm just not even in tune. And it was the first time that I looked around and I thought, oh, there's, there's some lines in this world. There's some things that are broken in this world. And it was the first time that I heard God cared about that. It's the first time that I noticed that there was something that I needed to pay attention to. And it is a lens that has forever shaped how I viewed God in the world since then. We live in a divided and broken world. And today we're going to take a look at this first prayer uh, of Jesus in his final 24 hours. You see, he has just finished a time with his disciples. He's had a meal with them. And he's taught them some of the most important things. He knows he has limited time with these 11 guys that are left. Judas is left. He's sitting there. He's washed their feet. He's told them what it looks like to be a leader. He's, he's leaving them with this incredible teaching. And then we capture a prayer. And we're not sure where it is. But it probably is sort of on his way out of this room where they've had this meal on the way to the garden where he's about to be arrested and moved towards the cross. And I think it's important whenever we find prayers in there that when they capture these prayers that we hone in a little bit because... Um, it would be unusual if any of y'all wrote down one of my prayers. Like we, when we pray, these aren't things that we tend to listen to. They tend to be more conversational. But I think there's something important in Jesus' prayers and the prayers that are captured in Scripture. They're there for a reason. And so we're going to be looking today at John chapter 17. And the whole piece of it is in your bulletin. It wouldn't all fit, but we're going to, I'm going to start from the beginning. And then the parts that are in there, we're going to focus on a little bit more. But I'm going to read from the beginning of John chapter 17, verses 1. If you have your phone Bibles or your other one, you're free to follow along. It says this, after Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. In the beginning, we get this sort of tender look of Jesus talking to his father, and I love this, because Jesus has this intimate relationship with God, this perfect relationship. We see throughout his life when he had these moments where he could pull aside, he always ran to his father. He always spent time with him. He went to these quiet places to pray, and again, when he begins his prayer, it's this moment where he's interacting with his father, the one who knows everything that's coming on, the one he trusts, and, and he's speaking to him. And I love that we sort of get this little tender moment of Jesus with God. And then he prays for his disciples in verse 6. 
I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours and all you have is mine and glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that scripture would be fulfilled. Early on in the prayer, we already see he's praying for their unity. Protect them so that they may be one as we are one. This idea that he wants them to be able to stick together, that he wants them to be together through everything that's going to come. Protect them so they can remain. Verse 13. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. It's really interesting. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. There's this sense that his disciples, these 11 guys that he's praying for, are exactly where they're supposed to be. He's not saying rescue them, pull them out, set them away. He's saying, no, leave them right where they are, but protect them. I have put them in the exact position. And you and I are sitting here today because those guys stayed where they were and endured what they did and started the church and spread it across all of these places so that we could be here. And I love that prayer for them. Protect them, leave them where they are, but protect them from the evil one. And it's a really interesting statement even right there. Protect them from the evil one. And I think the reason that this is in there, as I've been studying through this, is because his prayer for us is unity. We see it early on. And when he starts praying from the evil one, what is the evil one's most favorite tactic? It's division. What is the quickest way to get a group to break up? Break their trust. Start pointing fingers. Break them apart. We've seen it. It happens every day. We see it in churches. We see it in our families. We see it everywhere we look. And it is just the insidious way that the evil one, the enemy, works his way through. Break us down. Have us not trust one another. Divide them up. And once you're picked apart, it's so easy to break it down. Protect them from the evil one. Last weekend, if you were here uh, with Pastor Oscar, um, he was having a chance to teach us kind of how scripture works. And one of the passages he taught through was Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 through 19. And it was so perfect that he talked about it last weekend as I was thinking about this. Proverbs 6, 16 through 19 says this, There are six things the Lord hates, Seven are detestable to him. So he said, there are six things that are awful and the seventh one is really bad. Like the seventh one you better watch out for. And the six things are pretty bad. It's haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood. That's pretty bad, right? Someone's killing somebody here. A heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies. So I'm like, that's a pretty heady list right here. I think we should probably avoid all those. Then the seventh one, he says, this is the one that is detestable to the Lord. This is the worst of all of them and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. Isn't that interesting? The worst, it's worse. I mean, he points out that this is worse than killing an innocent person is someone that stirs up disunity. And in the beginning, Jesus starts praying for protection from that, that we would be unified. Continues on, verse 17, Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is the truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them, I sanctify myself that they too may be truly sanctified. Now that's a pretty churchy word that gets used in their sanctified. What is that? 
Sanctification, it, it means to grow and to look more and love more like Jesus. It means to continue to grow, that this doesn't stop the day that we accept him into our lives, that there is a process throughout our lives that we look more like him. And he is praying that his disciples be, be continue to look more like him. And how do they look, do that? How do they look more like him? By the truth. And what is the truth? Your word is the truth. And he leaves us the word, the Bible, his scriptures of truth to be able to grow more and look more like him. Um, so he prays at this beginning of his followers that they have a chance to continue to know more about him through reading his word. And that's one of the reasons we have put so much emphasis on this reading plan this year. This is not a mistake that he said this. This is the way that we grow, that we change, that we become more like him is knowing him. And so we're starting again this week in this new part of the reading plan to read through all four of these gospels together to get this complete picture of Jesus. Then it continues on, verse 20. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, you and I, those of us who are here today through his disciples that followed, that all of us, that the church, the people that we continue on, he says this, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. The first moments he prays for us. He thinks of us and not just prays for us. Though there are specific things he prays for us. He thinks first of us on his way to the cross. On the way in this incredibly painful journey in the least last 24 hours, he thinks of you and I and he has a hope for us. He has a deep hope for us. That they may be one as we are one. That they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. There's something about unity, about being together, complete unity, when it happens, that the world, that everybody outside of this unity would recognize God. I mean, it seems, again, so simple. Can't we just get along, right? It's so simple, but it's definitely not easy because we're humans and we're wired up in all of these different ways. And he says, though, if we can be brought to complete unity, that the world would see his glory. Now, we've talked about glory before, this incredibly bright light of Jesus, this idea of everything of God on display. And he says here that unity is glorious, that there is something about unity that it actually reflects his glory back to him. That is one of those things that has really struck me. In the prayer, he says that God gave Jesus glory and Jesus gave his glory to his followers. But then when the followers join together, their glory is ignited and radiated back towards him. There's this interplay of this essence of God and one of the key pieces of his essence is our unity. It's an incredible cycle. So as I read that, as I think about this prayer that he has for us of being united, uh, my question would be is where is your life pointed? Uh, what's most important to you? As you're sitting here this morning, as, as we are in the midst of our life and we take a chance and we break out and we come to worship, where's your life pointed? What's going on in your life? Where are you focused in on? 
because death has lost its sting, because we know the end of the story, that we sit here kind of in the midst of it in Lent. We know that if Jesus comes back from the dead, we know that he raises life. We looked at this a few weeks ago as he raised Lazarus, and he said, death has lost its sting, and Jesus knows this. This is one of the things that I have loved about reading this story. Though he is walking in this 24 hours, and though we get a glimpse of his life on the way to the cross, on the way to his own death, he knows that death has no power over him. Though he is going to face unimaginable separation and pain, he knows that it's already, it's already gone. And so he is living these last 24 hours without the fear of death. He is living past that, and he is saying, this is how your life can look. Once I do what I'm going to do on the cross, once I have finished it, once it is complete, once I come back, this is the life you can live every day, this life that I have promised for you that you can have now, not just in heaven, not just when everything's perfect, but today. This is the life you can live because death has lost its sting. You can live your life like the last 24 hours of my life. So where is your life going? Where is your life looking like? What is, are the things you're focusing on in a life that, where death has lost its sting? Is it pointed towards unity? Is it pointed towards others? Is it looking to Jesus? Is it tr gathering together? Or is it focused in like I as revealed in most of my life, a lot of times I'm thinking pretty shallowly about the things that are going on right around me. What would it look like if we were really focused on each other, if we were focused on Jesus and brought together in unity? How, how could that be? What, what would that mean for the story in our community in Lake Mary if we were to do that? But again, Though simple, it's not easy, is it? We are divided all over the place. But yet, complete unity is Jesus' desire for us. So how do we get there? I, I would propose a couple of things. Um, a lot of the series that we're going to be looking in is going to be kind of just more reflective. But I, as I've thought about this unity, I think there's a piece of this that we own. Because his desire for us is unity, and his plan of unity is what sheds this light to the world. There are pieces of us where we need to own this on our own. So I'm going to give you one thing I think that might be helpful to stop, and a couple of things that might be helpful to do as we move towards unity. And the first is this, and I will tell you, I'm not, it's not my favorite thing to get up in front of me and say, hey, you should stop doing this. That's like, that's not me, right? I like to be like the nice guy and stuff like that. But I think this is important. I think this is really important. I think we need to take a look at what we're watching, what we're reading, what we're focused on that divides us? And what steps can you take in the midst of this? I think the first time this really hit me was after the um, Bush, it was a Bush Gore election, the hanging chads. If you weren't in Florida then, you're welcome country. Uh, that was us uh, breaking all of the election that year, uh, which I think statistics would say about half of you didn't live in Florida yet by then. Um, that's what, 10 years ago. But I remember I was, had a job at that point where I was in sales. I was in my car all the time. And I found myself listening to talk radio all the time because I wanted to be informed. And, and being informed is, can be a great thing, right? I think as Christians, we should be some of the most informed, some of the most creative, some of the most on top of things people in the world because God has gifted us with intellect and all of these things. But what I found is that at first, um, as I was listening to talk radio every day and keeping up with the election, it brought me closer to some of my friends, right? Like I was, I was able to be in some conversations and it brought me together with some people. But then a switch turned somewhere in the midst of that, and I found myself angry a lot. And I'm not typically an angry person. Don't talk to my family. Um, but, um, but I tend to not like, go that direction. I found myself kind of bitter. And all of a sudden, like, my conversations were about them. I'm like, who is them? I, don't even know, I didn't even know there was a them. And, and, and it started getting like I would just be angry all the time and jittery, and, and I didn't know what it was. And I finally realized just these voices, it, what had started pointing me towards other people had turned into this divisive thing where it was pointing me against. And I realized as soon as I turned off the radio, like my life kind of went back into balance as I started uh, getting back into the scripture and all these things, like life kind of leveled back out. It was the first time I realized that like what we look at 
what we pick in will eventually come back out um, and, and it can divide us. And like I said, in and of itself, information is not a bad thing. And information is pretty neutral, but what is the purpose of it? Like, what is the purpose of all the things that we consume? Is it to bring us together, to unite us with others, or is it continuing to, to, to cast a line? Is it every time you go online, every time you listen to something, you're thinking about me, them, and, and putting walls up around the people around you? Kind of comes back to that idea in the Proverbs. Are you one stirring up conflict in the community? Is that where these pieces of your life are leading to? Is that the overflow of your life? So I might posit that there are some things we should stop doing. If there are things in your life that are causing division between you and other people, is to take a good hard look at that. And, and maybe you don't even know it. Maybe you have to ask someone around you and say, are there some things? Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's a friend. Are there things that are kind of doing that? And then be willing to stop because that's the hard part, right? We can diagnose our problems all day long, but until we take a step towards it, nothing changes. Now the fun part, what are some things we can start doing that lead towards unity? Uh, one of the very most clear, read scripture. Read his word, John 17, 17. Hopefully that will help you remember it. I love that. 17, 17, 17, 17, right? It's a very easy way to remember that. Is that stuck in your head yet? Let me do it three times. 17, 17. Um, Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is the truth. He's left his word, this living word, this thing that can permeate us, that can change us from the inside out as we spend time with it. It's not just for information. You see, this is a living word, a word that comes inside and can change us, that can bring us towards other people. The hope of this is not just that we'd have our heads full and not just to cause division. It is to bring us closer to Jesus. And we're closer to Jesus. We have no choice but to be closer to others because the overflow of being close to Jesus is loving others, right? That's his whole end game is to invite people in. And so it brings us together. and We're focused on the right things. The first thing I would say is, is to read scripture, to spend time with him. Luke 6, 45, a good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. And an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Fill your heart with the good things and we will be brought together. And the second thing I, I would recommend is this. On our path towards unity, if, again, if this is one of the most important things that Jesus lays out there in his final day, is that we're together, is that we've got to get close. Uh, Brene Brown, one of uh, kind of the leading thinkers of our day, TED Talk, many of you have read her books, but she has a whole chapter in one of her books called People Are Hard to Hate Close Up, Move In. She said, women and men I interviewed who had the strongest sense of true belonging stayed zoomed in, forming their opinions of people based on their actual in-person experiences, writes Brene. The news and social media give the impression that we're more divided than we actually are, but it's our day-to-day relationships like the one we form with coworkers that have the potential to broaden our perspectives and increase our feeling of belonging. It's hard to hate close up. I mean, I've heard this repeated. A FBI director recently was talking about that in the, in the area of placing this idea that it's really easy when people are at a distance to be an us and them, right? It's easy to go them. Who is them? Them is us. I mean, we, when we're a person, the problems are not people. People are people. We can look at it and it's easy to cast it off. But when we draw them close to people, it's one of the reasons we do nice serve. It's one of the reasons we encourage groups to serve. It's one of the reasons it's the bedrock of who we are. Because when we serve alongside of people, when we go to, across the world and visit Africa, it's not to go fix anything. It's to come alongside of people because people are not problems. People are God's creation. And when we draw in close, we're brought together and we realize that we're not that different. And that God cares about them just as much as me. And I'm broken and you're broken and they're broken. How do we draw together in the midst of that? Get close. Uh, what would it tell the world if we really loved each other? 
if we really were brought to complete unity? What if we were truly united around a common purpose? And I think we do a pretty good job of that here. I really do. I think that our community, that we work hard at that, but it is an ongoing process. We're not done. And as I read this, 2,000 years ago, this was an issue, right? This in Jesus' final moments, and he knew that you and I sitting here today would be in the midst of this, that this would be an ongoing thing, but it was his deep, deep hope for us that we would be brought to complete unity. That in a divided world, that the way we care for each other, starting here, would say something to him. And, and, and what I've thought about with this unity idea is it's, uh, it starts here. It starts with the people sitting next to you in the aisle. It starts in your families. It starts close. But because it starts close, it spreads out. It doesn't stop there. The, the point of unity is not that, hey, look at us, we're so great. But there's a little bit of that. There's a little bit of that. Because of that, our heart is, grows outward. Because again, growing close to Jesus, the only way to be brought to complete unity is to be so closely bound to Jesus that we're brought together. And Jesus' heart is for the world. And so unity then becomes a shining light. Because I will tell you, I think the thing that your neighbors and the people you work with want more than anything is to know that there's more, that there is hope. Because I, I was talking to someone yesterday at a wedding, and we were just going, how do you get through life without more hope than what's there? How do, you, how do you stay involved in a marriage if Jesus isn't part of it? I mean, just the, there's not enough intrinsically. We're not that good. We don't have that much deep hope within us, and people need it. And unity, I think, is one of those things that screams at the people. When they actually see people that are of like mind and caring for each other, that is so different than what most of your friends and coworkers and people see in the world. Because what they're seeing is the same thing you and I are seeing, right? They're turning on Facebook and Twitter as much as we are, and they're seeing broken, broken, broken. And we're starting to say, no, Jesus wants together and fixed and restoration. As I thought about it too, I don't think this is this milk toast idea that we all just think alike and that we're just kind of watered down people, right? Like unity, I think it can become this idea like, well, if we just all think alike and if we just sort of all are, you know, automatrons and sort of do our thing, right? Like that will do it. That's not unity. I think unity is far more complex and far more layered than that. And I think the picture that I had most clearly of what unity has looked like to me is I was, remember we were in the middle of a, a financial study. It was a, a crown compass financial study. We're about four or five weeks in. And, and, and I'm together with uh, the group of folks and, and we're at a party. We're grilling out together. And here we are talking about money, about politics, and about religion and our faith, all the things you're not supposed to talk about, right, in the midst of people, all the things that are supposed to cause division. And guess what? We didn't all agree about all of it, but we didn't yell at each other. We loved each other. And it was so amazing to think, no, the church should be the place where we can have these conversations. In the midst of our community, we should be able to have these, but my respect for them is so high because we're united around Christ that we can differ in our opinion on some of these things and still love each other. I think, I think that's the unity that Jesus hoped for for us that it was this deep, actual care and love for each other. And I hope that's one of those things that we can continue to move forward, the things that we're already doing so well, and if we continue to move that way, and by proxy, the world would see a shining light, and that would be you and I together, united. Where are we going? Where is your life focused? How do we move towards unity with one another, and how can we keep moving towards Jesus with one another? And we're going to do that in a really practical way this morning. Um, I'm going to invite our worship team to come on up on stage. Uh, we are going to take an actual really practical step of unity this morning around the communion table. Jesus left a meal for us that screams unity again in the same 
season where he's praying that we would all be brought to complete unity. Right before that, he had introduced the communion meal for the first time. He was in the upper room and he showed them before he taught them. He showed them before he prayed it even. He said, take this bread. This is my body broken for you. Eat and remember me. Take this cup of wine. This is my blood shed for you. And so he demonstrated in the washing of feet. He showed them all these things and he prayed it and then he lived it. And this meal is a meal of unity because this meal is built around Jesus. And that is how we are united. Uh, we can't just decide that we're going to be united. It has to come around a common purpose. And for us, that is Jesus. And that common purpose will transcend the boundaries of just being alike. It will change us from the inside out. And he said something happens in the midst of being united, that his glory is exhibited to the world. And what happens when we come together, his glory is radiated out. And part of what happens, actually happens at the communion table, is his glory is on display. Through you and I, as we take the communion meal together, he, he says this. Listen to these words that we just shared from chapter 17 about his glory. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had had with you before the world began. All I have is yours and all you have is mine and glory has come to me through them. I have given them the glory you gave me that they may be one as we are one. I and them and you and me so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory. The glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. His glory is all over unity. And together, today, we're going to celebrate that.